Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining us from the comfort of your own home, your lounge, uh, perhaps even your bedroom. Uh, it's good for us at this time to be, uh, to be reminded that uh, the church is not a building. Uh, we are looking forward to the day that we can worship again together in this place, but in the meantime, we are the church. We are the people. We are the church. And so the call is on us to be the church where we work, where we play, where we live. And it will be such a tragedy if we put our church on hold while we wait for a pandemic to pass. Now the prophet Jeremiah writes to the Israelites in, in exile in Babylon, and he says exactly this. He says to them, this is not a good time for you to dial out. This is a time for you to dial in, to put your roots down, to, to put buildings down, to grow your families, to back your leaders, very importantly, to pray for your leaders. And so church, let's be that. Let's be there for each other. Let's be there for those around us. And let's be the church that God has called us to be. And that can take many forms in, in your own life and whatever that may look like. I know for us uh, recently, my wife Elise uh, wrote a letter to our local council, our gemeinder, and in the letter she said, man, we just want to let you guys know that we really appreciate what you're doing, that we're living in the most beautiful place and under difficult circumstances, you are doing an outstanding job. And then she went one step further and she said, we want you to know that we are praying for you. And uh, we didn't expect much to come of it. And then a few days later in our mail, uh, a letter arrived from the local council with the logos and two officials, senior officials. And they said, wow, we, we, we're so appreciative. We're so happy to hear that, that you are backing us and that you are praying for us. So let's be the church, right? Now that had nothing to do with what I want to talk about this morning. I want us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy, and we're going to look at chapter 1. And let's pick it up from, from verse 19. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19 says this. It says, Then, as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went, down, went towards the hill country of the Amorites through all the vast and dreadful desert that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up. And take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, Let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me. Moses writing here, he says, the idea seemed good to me. So I selected 12 of you, one man 
from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshul and explored it, taking with them some of the fruit of the land that brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Verse 27, you grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with the walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God is going before you, will fight for you, as he did in Egypt, before your very eyes and in the desert. There you saw the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore, I swore to give you, your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give it him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. This is uh, God's word to us this morning. And uh, before you and I are too quick to point fingers at these complaining, rebellious Israelites, before we are too quick to judge them this morning, let me ask you about the frequency of the complaints in your own life. If we were together as a church, people in the church building this morning, and I had to do a quick snap survey by raising hands, I am sure that if I had to ask you if you had to complain about something in the last four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, two weeks, dare I say that most of us would put our hands up because let's face it, complaining seems to come naturally to us. And chances are that when we are complaining, we're not just complaining about something you know, that difficult boss at work, or maybe family tensions at home, a marriage that's under strain, a, a mom having to look after an impossible toddler, a difficult situations at church, the coronavirus, that we have to wear a mask, and, and, and the chances are that we're not just complaining about those things, although they are very real and they're coming at our lives, but our complaining is rooted at a much deeper level. We complain not because all the stuff that we have to deal with, we complain 
because we have an or problem. A-W-E. Now, just before you, where you sit in your lounges, say, Krista, what on earth are you on about this morning? Let me explain that our challenge, my friends, is not just the problems that we have to deal with, but more fundamentally how our view of God shapes what we have to deal with. Let me say that again. Our challenge is not just what we have to deal with, but how our view of God shapes what we have to deal with. And so for us to fully understand the nature and the significance of the complaint of the Israelites, let me set the scene for us. The people of Israel were the chosen nation of God, of the creator of the universe. It was God who led them out of Egypt and freed them from slavery. It was God who set them free in the desert. It was God who sustained them every day. It was God who put his covenant love on them and said, not only are you my chosen people, but I am going to give you the promised land. It was God who did all of this. He would go before. He would defeat the nations. He would make the way. His track record was impeccable. And the only thing that separated the Israelites from the promised land was the Jordan River. The Jordan River was supposed to be the doorway, the pathway to the promised land, but instead its banks became the scene of their complaint. You see, they had sent some scouts into this land, in this foreign land, the promised land, to check it out, to come back with glowing reports, to come back with a richness of what this land, this promised land of God has to offer them. But instead, they came back with a whole lot of fear and retreated to their tents where their complaints continued. And my friends, it's key, the key verse for us to understand, for you and I to understand this morning is verse 27. Let me read it again. It says this, Because the Lord hated us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give, it, to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. This verse exposes the problem for the Israelites. You see, their problem wasn't a big city problem. It wasn't that the cities were fortified or that the people were large. It wasn't that they were tired of trekking through the desert, through the wilderness, that they had nothing in them for another battle. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that they had an awe problem. Of course, there were some hard battles to be fought. Of course, it was going to be difficult beyond their natural ability. Of course, there were some big challenges ahead. Life in a fallen world is hard. God has chosen to orchestrate and allow difficulties to come across my life that I would never have chosen. But these words of the Israelites demonstrate that their complaint was first and foremost about their God. If praise 
And worship is glorifying, is lifting up God's name, then complaint is distinctly anti-praise. It is losing the grandeur of God. It is beginning to question His power and His character. And if you truly believe that God is the creator of the universe and that He's in supreme control of everything, including our lives, if you really believe that in the bottom of your heart, then you cannot complain about your situation without complaining about God. It is the absence of all that leads me to question His power and His character. And when that happens, I begin to take my life into my own hands. I begin to rebel against what God wants me to do. My friends, this is exactly what went down on the banks of the Jordan River. And dare I say, it's going down in our lives much more frequently than we are willing to admit. And so far from just being a simple complaint, this complaint by the Israelites was deeply rebellious and also theological. You simply cannot just read the story and walk away from it thinking that complaint is a little thing. No, no, it is a big thing. God judged it swiftly and they would not see the promised land. What a tragedy. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to pose and try and answer five questions. Five questions that will demonstrate how our view of God will inescapably shape our perspective of our circumstances. How our view of God will shape what we go through this way. And whether you are a pastor or a stay-at-home mom or a plumber or a teacher or a banker or a student or whatever you do with your life, we all have to grapple with these questions. In many ways, like the people of Israel, we have to ask these deeply theological questions. And the way that we answer them, my friends, will either drive us towards panic or towards hope. We will either live in vertical awe or struck, or in horizontal despair. So let's look at these five questions. The first one is, is God good? Is God good? Take it from me. The goodness of God will confuse us. It certainly confused the Israelites. What seems perfect from God's eternal perspective often does not seem that good to me. It is hard for us to accept that God knows better. It is hard for us to admit that God will bring difficulties in our lives for our good. When it comes to what is good, it is hard for you and I to stay on God's agenda. And again, the issue of awe lies at the heart of it. If the awe of self replaces the awe of God, then I will invariably conclude that God is not always good and complaints will follow. If I place myself at the center of my, at the center of my life, my definition of good will be what is easy, 
what is comfortable, what is predictable, what gives me pleasure. And so when difficulties come, my default theological response is to question God's goodness in my life. And when we begin to do that, we will not, like the Israelites, follow His commands, and we will not do the hard things that He's wanting us to do because we no longer trust Him. But God is good. His goodness is the foundation of His awesome qualities. He never thinks, acts, desires, or says anything that is evil. Everything that is good and true is God. And His goodness is so bright and so glorious that it should leave us breathless and silent and amazed. In awe. And when we are amazed at the goodness of God, we will not panic in times of trouble. And we won't refuse to do what He's calling us to do. I wish I could say that I have never questioned the goodness of God. But I have. I remember a time uh, as a fairly young Christian, I at that stage have put my faith and my trust in Jesus. The gospel came to me in the most glorious and magnificent way. Jesus was my Savior. I never doubted that for one moment. But at that time, I, uh, I remember in a, was in a season where we came through a, a failed business. And I was without work for an extended period. And boy, did I panic. Did I go from pillar to post. Did I take the control of my hands as much as I could try to take the control into my own hands. And run from the one side to the other trying to make life work. And did it exhaust me? And I'll never forget one night. I was a committed follower of Christ. I came to my knees as a bunch of us came together and to pray. And I heard God saying to me, Krista, you know I'm good. What will it take for you to trust me? What will it take for you to trust me? And in that moment... I realized that my time was up. I've been a follower of Christ, but that night, the penny of the gospel dropped into my heart and my mind, and things began to change. My situation was not remedied overnight, but did I have peace? Did I have rest? Could I rest in the goodness of God? It was so humbling for me to know that my definition of good was not better than God's definition of good for my life. And so how about you this morning? Does the awe of God, as we are awestruck, does the awe of God interpret goodness for you? Or do you let the, life ships, the hardships of life cause you to question His goodness? The second question that we have to ask at this time is will God do what He promised? Will God to do what He promised? Few questions in life can be more important than this because you and I don't really know what's going to happen next. And we don't really know what God is going to call us to do. And so 
this question about His promises being reliable is a key question. Will He be with us always? Will He give us what we need? Will He forgive us no matter what? Will His love last forever? Will He provide and give us guidance and protection? Will He? Will He? The promises of God are meant to move and motivate us. They are meant to install hope. They are meant to give us courage. They are meant to defeat feelings of loneliness and fear and failure and inability. They are meant, listen carefully, to bring us peace at times when everything around us seems chaotic and out of control. God's promises are meant to blow your mind and settle your heart. They're meant to leave us in awe and wonder of His glory and grace. His promises are meant to be the only way that you and I can really make sense of life. And my friends, the problem isn't that life is hard. The problem is that we've lost our awe of the God who can go before us and can do everything that we need to deal with life. And so this morning I wonder, do you stand with hope and courage on the promises of God? Or do you walk through the quicksand of questioning their reliability? Thirdly, we ask this question, is God in control. Is God in control? Here's a fundamentally important place for our all to rest in some way. All the other questions will come back to this one. What use is it if God is good? What use is it is if He is reliable in His promises, but He has got no control? And the sovereign control of God over every situation, location, and person is meant to bring rest to our lives. But here's the problem. At times, our lives and the world in which we live doesn't seem to be under wise and careful control. May I say that right now, it seems decidedly out of control. And so will you and I let our interpretation of circumstances tell us who God is? Or will we rely on His revelation of Himself to interpret circumstances for us? Let me ask that again. Will you and I allow our interpretation of this world, the horizontal world that we live in, to tell us who God is? Or are we going to rely on His revelation of Himself to help us to interpret the world in which we live. Folks, you and I will only find rest in situations that we have no control over if we truly are awestruck in the one who controls everything for our, for our good and for his glory. It is only when we are in awe of God and his ability to control everything that he created, including our lives, that we will have true rest. Control freaks don't have a power problem. They have an awe problem. And so how about you this morning? 
has your awe of God's infinite sovereignty freed you from both the fear and the need to be in control? Question number four is, does God have the necessary power? Does God have the necessary power? And I'm thinking, how, does, how, can, how can you and I measure the power of God? How can our poor, feeble minds measure that which is without limit? And Scripture tells us that God comes to us with the same power by which He resurrected Christ. That's a statement. That is power. To breathe life into a dead body, to see a dead person walking out of a tomb, that is real power. If any of you have lost a loved one and you've seen the life drain from that, you will know exactly what I talk about because in those moments we feel utterly powerless. But God has control over life and death. And here's why it matters. It matters because we will only have, we will only have peace to cope with our own failures and weaknesses, inabilities, if we are in awe of God's awesome power. I will only rise up to do what I don't have in my natural ability if I'm dependent on God to unleash His power. The Israelites were facing big cities. They were facing big people. These were big challenges. And when I come to the end of what I have to, uh, what I have to offer, when I admit that I face situations that I can do nothing about, it is at that point that I trust in God's power. And God's power gives me courage and hope, my friends. It is His power that will get me to admit the own limitations in my life. And yet, go about my daily life with courage and hope. And timidity and fear and running away and doing this, what the Israelites were doing, they are not weakness problems first and foremost. They are all problems. I step into what is bigger than I can, that I can face because I know the one who's going before me is the all-powerful one who knows what I'm facing. So what about you? Are you this morning feeling paralyzed by fear and by your weakness? Or are you awestruck? Does the awe of God power you to live a courageous life? And then finally, question number five. Does God care about me? It's perhaps the question that most of us ask all the time. It's the question that the wife asks where marriage goes sour. It's the question that the mom asks after a hard day with the children. 
It's the question that we ask when we lose our jobs. It's the question that we ask when the relationships at the workplace fall apart. It's the question that we ask when we face serious health issues. It's the question that we ask when we, when we are weak and suffering in our old age. It is the question that we ask, does God care about me? And the Bible reassures us that God's care is foundational to who He is. It doesn't question God's care because all that He is, He is for me. It means His care will be good for me. It means that His care, He will be trustworthy in His promises. It means that He will exercise in His great care his control over me. It means that in his great care, he will unleash his power in me. The Bible doesn't debate God's care. It assumes it and it declares it. And it comforts me with the lovish nature of his mercy and grace and forgiveness and tenderness and faithfulness. He is the ultimate loving father. Some of us may not have had the greatest of experience with our biological fathers, our earthly fathers. I was the son of a father who was a factory worker. He was raised at a time when he perhaps didn't have all the skills and the experience that, in the way to raise children, and I'm saying this in the, in the most honoring way, but boy, did he care for me? I remember one time when um, we were, as a primary school, going on a, on a school tour, a sports tour. And uh, I heard a conversation, overheard a conversation, which I wasn't meant to hear between my mom and my dad. And the, the conversation went along the lines that they didn't have the money to pay for me to go on this event. And then I heard my dad say this, that he worked out if he could work overtime for four or five or six weeks and earn an extra hour or two every day, that money would pay for this excursion that I went on to. And in that moment, I knew my God cares. My Father cares. How much more will my Heavenly Father not care for me? He is the completely faithful friend. He is the one who's closer than a brother. He is the one who will never leave you. He is the one who will never send you before without going himself. He is our protector, our guide, our, our defender, our teacher, our savior, our rescuer. He never mocks our, good, our, our weakness, but he gives us strength. He never holds our sin against us, but he forgives us in every possible way. God cares deeply for you and I. The complaints that went down on the banks of the Jordan River wasn't complaints about circumstances first and foremost. As we saw in verse 27, the Israelites, despite God's perfect track record with them, despite his rescuing act with them, despite giving them the promised land on their hands, despite everything he's done with them, the Israelites lost their all. 
and wonder and in that moment suffered tragic consequences. And so you and I, as we ask these questions, is God good? Will He do what He promised? Is He in control? Is He powerful? Does He care for me? As we ask these deeply theological questions with the Israelites this morning, what are we going to answer? What are we going to answer? We do not have a horizontal problem this morning, my friends. Yes, there are situations which are challenging. But our problem is our vertical awe. And awe produces gratitude. And gratitude brings great joy to our lives. We will never live without true peace and rest unless we are completely sold out to the magnificence and the wonder of our gracious Heavenly Father who, like He did for the Israelites, has won the battle for us, the biggest battle that humankind could ever face, the one problem that could kill humans forever, eternal separation from God. God won that battle through Jesus on the cross. And I don't know what it's like for you, but I know when I lose the awe and wonder of the magnificence of the glory of God's grace in my life, everything else seems to go south. I have no rest. I have no peace. I am weak. I have no joy. I have no gratitude. And I'm trying to live in a way that God has never meant for me to live. And so this week, as we go about our ways, rest assured that things will come across our paths that you and I will not have the answer for. Are we going to be the Israelites on the banks of the Jordan River and go back to our tents and complain and grumble? Or are we going to be a people who look up to our Heavenly Father, who drink richly from our Savior, who become awestruck afresh and know that His grace alone can satisfy our hearts? Are we going to be people like that? Let's ask God to reveal himself afresh to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, it would be so easy for us this morning to judge from the outside or from the sidelines to question how the Israelites could possibly have been so rebellious, so grumbling, how could they possibly have said no to what God was giving right in front of them? And in that moment, they were blinded by their own rebellious hearts and their own stupidity. And they lost the awe and wonder in you, despite everything you've done for them. Father, rescue us this morning, because we are in the same boat. 
And we don't want to live like that. Help us to learn from this passage. Help us to look up to you again. Help us to be blown away by your goodness and your power and your promises and your care. Help us to be awestruck this morning. I wonder as I'm praying for all of us this morning. Maybe you at a place, you may have been a follower of Christ, a devoted follower of Christ for many years or some time. You say this morning, Christo, I've, I've lost my all. Well, my friend, it's a very simple thing. Where you are, just open your heart and your mind freshly to the gospel of grace to change you. And ask God to reveal himself to you freshly so that you will be stirred for him and him alone. You may say to me, Christo, none of this makes sense because I've never ever been in a place that I've understood that I need the gospel. I need a new life. Well, the good news for you this morning is that a, a new life is possible because God's sending his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross and to leave an empty grave behind. You and I, every human being on this planet, can be reconciled to God through that act. And this morning, all you have to do is to come to him in a simple prayer to own up on your own rebellious heart, to own up on your own sinfulness, and to ask God for forgiveness. He is ready to give you a brand new life this morning. And so, Father, whether we've lost our way or whether we've never got the way, we come to you this morning and we ask for a fresh touch by your Holy Spirit so that we can live like people who are truly awestruck. In your wonderful name, we pray this, Jesus. Amen.